Hi everyone, it's Sarah again, and welcome to Sarah's Space. We have a special treat tonight. I have in my space uh, Heidi Wood, a dear friend of mine, and I would like to introduce her now. Hi Heidi. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Such a treat and such a pleasure. Uh, I have asked Heidi to come and speak to a couple of very important things. Uh, one of them we'll tackle right off the bat. Who are you and why do I know you? <laughs> well, um, I am a friend, a colleague, and a dance mom. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> it's the connection. So you have been working with my oldest daughter for, I'm going to say, almost seven years now. Is that correct? I think it's awfully close. Yeah, yeah I think so. Feels, she was it, just a, she was 11, just I think. She was 11, right? Yeah. So uh, for the last seven years, uh, we have relied on you for much more than just dance instruction, <laughs> but friendship and advice. And oh, It's um, been a pleasure. It's been wonderful. Okay. Um, on that subject, you have two daughters? I have two daughters. They're both dancers, and we're looking forward to spending some Sarah time this summer dancing. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, tell me about uh, their ages. Well, I gather, you. I think you already said, did you say that Hannah was 18? I don't know if I said she was 18, okay. but she is. She's 18. Yeah. She's graduating this year whole nother level of uh, mom fears coming to the surface. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, and the other one is 15, going into grade 10, so we know we still get one more at home uh, to maybe follow the rules for another couple <laughs> of years with no attitude, but you never know, that might all change. Hear this, youth. <laughs> yes, no doubt, no doubt. So I'd like to address that a little bit because I so often hear the perspective of youth and uh, daughters, mostly daughters, sometimes sons, and I so often hear um, things such as, I feel like my mom and dad don't really understand what, what this future might hold for me. They, they were, always seem so worried. They seem to really want to pressure me to go to school. Uh, they don't necessarily understand what I want to do. And then sometimes uh, I'm endeared even further because then they say, I, I'm not really sure what I want to do. How do I tell them? <laughs> so... As a, as a parent of two lovely young dancers and one that is literally embarking on that world right now, what, what could you say that might illuminate the hearts and the minds of young people around? I think, first of all, I need to say I'm a teacher. So I am that horrible teacher mom that believes in education, right? right? That being said... I've also been extremely honored to have very, very gifted children who have never found school difficult right. and have always been passionate about learning something. Mm -hmm. I also was a dancer. Right. And I had a lot of passion growing up around dance and music and the fine arts. And so, yes, I want my children to be successful in whichever way that looks for them. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'd like them to go to university. I right. have you know, very aware of what our society holds today for children who do not further education and mm -hmm. what maybe that can bring them in the future for opportunities. I, I totally get that. But ultimately, I want my children to really love what they do because mm -hmm. they're going to have to get up every single day and do it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you make money doing it and sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. Hence why teaching was a second career for me. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Right. I wasn't going to make any money in an art history, archaeology, and anthropology degree. Right. Um, not that money is the be-all, end-all, but I recognized that I needed to 
have the ability to be passionate about what I do, to work with children, which I loved doing, but also at the same time, have the opportunity to dance, have the opportunity for, to fulfill sort of those academic needs. And I'm hoping my children find the same thing. I think it's hard though for parents to be able to say, you need to figure this out and yeah. step back. Yeah. That's where you come into the picture because when we did that, I said, go talk to Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I guess what I'm always very sensitive to and I, I want to ask you about how it influences your decisions and possibly your conversations with your daughters and maybe also with your husband because there are two of you parenting. I know that a lot of parents are, it's not the money, it's the stability. Yes. It's its the idea of my child can take care of themselves and be self-sufficient. And even my own father and mom, secondarily, uh, wanted me to be able to take care of myself. So however that looked didn't matter, but, but chasing after a, a dream that was going to leave me penniless and living on the street was just not going to happen so it wasn't so much the dream it wasn't so much that it was dancing it wasn't so much about the arts it was about just make sure you can take care of yourself and and the paradigm around that didn't have anything to do with a certain level or standard so my question to you is because I know that has been an issue for other parents I've actually even had a wonderful candid conversation with a mom who said my daughter has grown up in our household and we were lucky to have means. And I don't think she can do without. And I thought that was incredibly honest and fair. She's the mom. They've lived there. I don't know what that life looked like. But I also wondered in that moment if that was really what she did or didn't want her daughter to do without as opposed to what the daughter was really capable of doing without. Because it's like you brought up. It's so much about if your soul's being fed you're not that hungry left over. You need to eat, you need to have a roof, and you need to have the basic necessities met. But how does that influence you in your conversations? It's really tough conversations. It is tough conversations because you don't want to be the teacher mom that says, no, go get an education, and you don't want to be the parent that says, it's okay, honey, we'll figure it out no matter what, so you can just you know, do what you want and we'll give you everything. That's, right. that's not who, who we are, that's not what what uh, my husband and I believe. And so what I think has been the challenge is to explain to the kids, to both girls, that working hard is a must. Mm -hmm. No matter what you choose to do, mm -hmm. you have to work hard. You have to have that moral, ethical desire to do well in what you're doing, but to really love what you're doing at the same time. Mm -hmm. We want them to have a, the stability, for sure. Yeah. Because... Otherwise, there's so many stressors that challenge you. Mm -hmm. And our society isn't always necessarily kind to some of those stressors, I don't feel. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever want my children to feel like they can't succeed or survive in what field they've chosen. But I also don't want them to ever think that they can't change it. Mm -hmm. So if they choose to go down the path, Hannah's going down the path. Um, of dance right now and mm -hmm. I couldn't be happier for her I'm mm -hmm. thrilled that she's decided to take this year but she's also working really hard to help pay for it mm -hmm. right. and recognizes that at some point mom and dad are going to retire and we can help out in the ways that we can help out but that she needs to earn this in her own way mm -hmm. and that this can't just be a handout mm -hmm. um, the young one is still trying to figure out what she wants to do mm -hmm. 
Ems is not really sure. She loves certain subject areas. She loves fine arts. She's gifted in so many talented ways around fine arts, around art and drawing and dancing and mm -hmm. music. Um, you know, that we want to encourage her to explore that opportunity, but not to shut down the other opportunities yeah. at the same time. Yeah. So we do believe in providing opportunity for our children through right. travel, through cultural experiences, through family time. Yeah. We, we actually don't spend a lot of time apart as a family. Yeah. We tend to do everything as a family because we had a family to be together, not, not to sort of say, here you go, off you go. Yeah. Um, and we try and experience these together and we try and have conversations about what it is that they're seeing, doing, loving, not loving, and ask them those questions, right? And, and try to keep our opinions as our opinions. Yes. Yeah. It's tough. Yes. Oh, no, I know. Yes, it's <laughs> I can attest to that. And, and yeah. as the parents of dancers, dance is not cheap. Yeah. There are so yeah. many financial pieces that go with dance. And as an educator, I don't have as many opportunities to sort of take on a second job. I work 50, 60 hours a week. Yeah. And when I'm not working, I'm driving my children to dance. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and there's it, a ceiling, in other there's words. There's a ceiling, yeah. right? Yeah. And yet you, as a parent, want to always provide. Yeah. Sometimes we have to sit back, and that's what my husband reminds me is, we worked really hard to get where we are, yeah, and we turned out just fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I um, appreciate you speaking to that, and I, I think the other aspect I just want to wiggle in there right now is, I because I have an intimate knowledge of what they're training for and how Hannah's working, mm -hmm. I'm aware that there's a great deal of ballet and contemporary ballet and contemporary uh, influences and, uh, shall we say, desires behind it. If it were something different than that, if it were something that maybe didn't speak to your heart as much, mm -hmm. would you find, A, it harder to uh, collaborate with your husband and say, no, let's support and let this is okay? Uh, would you find it harder to support Hannah in her endeavors to perhaps leave for LA and and be in a more commercial bridging slash training institute to try and be discovered for a commercial gig that may or may not take her on a cruise ship or may or may not take her on a tour, a, a singer's tour or be a backup dancer for videos or or does it matter to you? Is it, is it about my child is happy, they are working hard, they are providing for themselves or I'm, I'm sort of asking this selfishly because I must admit that I will be probably undeniably, inevitably biased on every level, depending on where my own daughter's leanings yeah. become um, apparent at a later age, mm -hmm. just because I feel as though uh, to support something truly with integrity I have to actually support it I can support the happiness behind it I can support the idea of self-reliance but say for instance um if my daughter ha had the possibility I mean just throwing out a weird a weird one here D tomorrow to quit educating herself for grade four <laughs> That was no longer needed, <laughs> no and she could uh, make a whole bunch of money. Ah, here's a perfect one. Actually, this is actually viable because she's cute. Yeah, she's cute. Um, she likes to act up. She's dramatic, and someone's just quote unquote 
air quotes, discovers her and suddenly wants her to be an actress. And by the way, you can do a bit of homeschooling on the side. I actually wouldn't support that. I can genuinely say that. I'm sorry, people everywhere that are shaking your heads in dismay at me, but I just couldn't. I, I, I feel as though that would be missing out on one of the big pieces that you spoke about, which is family time, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why I did wait so late in life to have a child, because I wanted to get my time a little bit more taken care of so that I could really dedicate to, to Kira's and my, well, I didn't know what she was going to be or who she was going to be, but to my child's time and share it with my husband. So I kind of went off there I digressed but I'll go back to the central issue if their choices or their leanings were perhaps less appealing to you and your husband how do you feel like you might react well I think my initial reaction may not be nice Mm -hmm. like I may go what the heck are you thinking like Mm -hmm. are you kidding me that's not even an option I think ultimately about safety and I think ultimately about the safety of her her spirit and her heart and her physical well-being mm-hmm. going and doing something that maybe I don't always agree with. Right. I, I do realize that she's considered an adult for most cases yeah. now. And, and if she chooses to do that, there's not really much I can say yeah. other than you can't live at home and I'm not paying. Right. So, um, <laughs> which, which are big which, words. <laughs> which are big words. But I guess to understand sort of my, my mind around that is I had unconditional love and support from the most amazing people in my life. So starting with my grandparents, my Nana, my granddad, they loved you no matter what. Right. They didn't care if you could read or not read, if you could do math or not math. They didn't care if I danced and pretended to be a ballerina, but yet really it was really embarrassing. They loved me <laughs> no matter what, and you felt it. Right. And their biggest teachings for me was, you have to try everything. How can you how can you make decisions without trying something else first? Right. And so that carried on with my parents, with the people that my parents chose to surround us with growing up. Right. Um, I lived in a small community. I think that we've tried to instill that on the girls as well, mm-hmm. that we love them unconditionally. We don't necessarily have to agree with what their, their decisions are. Yeah. But we do have to have conversations around, are these good decisions? Mm-hmm. Have you really thought them out? Right. Yeah. Have you explored other options that might include that decision, but not fully invest in it in a way that you can't come back from it? Right. right. So I think, yes, there are, are times where I would probably go, uh, that's not going to work for us. Mm-hmm. But there's also opportunities that I think they need to try. To right. really explore who they are as, as individuals. Yeah. Ultimately, I want to raise strong, independent-minded, highly ethical, moral children mm-hmm. that will go off and be amazing adults and contribute in some way to society. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to do because as children, as you know, yeah. raising strong-minded and independent young ladies, it's a lot of ladies, work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. <laughs> but we're proud of, of, we see it now. Like we see what some of those really long nights of crying and I don't mean my children I mean mean what that looks like you know when you have these incredibly um willed independent individuals spirited humans yes you know and and we can just trust that we've done the right thing by them and hope that that they see and provide as many opportunities for them 
to be able to talk to us about it and not right. just say this is what I'm doing. Right, right. Well, that's a that's a wonderful answer filled with so many avenues of understanding and compassion. And I will take due note. Well, and <laughs> do I will my very say, best. you know, another quarter of an inch, and Hannah would have been the right size for a Disney princess. She was going to, <laughs> she was going to be Belle. So you know, we we really had to play with that. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious! Um, okay, well, I I think that I mean. Quite honestly, because I I do deal with youth and their their sorrows and their angst and their the pressures that they're under in the dance world, I I am I'm also fascinated as to what that looks like from a parental perspective. But I think that should be another podcast because that's a huge subject. It is because I think it is really uh, as as any parent can attest to so difficult to step back far enough to allow your child to deal with a situation that might be extremely difficult for them to deal with, but not so far that you leave them stranded and, and floundering in this horrible, stressful, pressurized, uh, dictatorial, matriarchal slash patriarchal slash forget the gender, just nasty environment that really is is unwarranted on a lot of cases. So uh, we'll have to have, have a part two regarding Sounds that. Good. Yeah, because I okay. there's something else very important I want to speak to you about. And... Uh, that is that when I did meet you many years ago, I don't remember the first time this came up, but I suspect it was not long after meeting you. I think perhaps I had done two or three privates with Hannah. And I think I was probably, because we were talking about her feet and the incredible high arched, high instep structure that she was dealing with on point. And I was, I always look at things from, I can't help it as, scientific genetic biological perspective and I think so I asked you mm -hmm. some questions oh what does her dad look like and what do your parents look like and then that was when you illuminated me with some facts about your background that led into a whole beautiful story that is going to lead us into a whole other segue and digression from the conversation we're currently having so could you please tell me a little bit about who you are as to where you were born and the circumstances of that and what your current role as an educator, as a teacher is, please. So I was adopted and I don't actually recall ever not knowing that. Um, it was always a very open conversation in my family that we were gifts and that I was born on Father's Day. Uh, and so my father always reminded me that that's super important. And so it wasn't, it was never this, you know, realization like, oh no, I'm adopted and that's not mm -hmm. a good thing. We always knew that it was special. We always knew that it was so important and we always felt very honored to have the family that we did. And it was interesting because when you're adopted, their social workers are involved and right. they give you this information so right. that you have what's called non-identifying information about your background and they try and match you up as much culturally and religiously oh, okay. to the family. Okay. So my mom's side is Scottish, my father's side is German, so they they really looked at the best batches for that, so right. I identify as being Scottish and German. Okay. Grew up that way. We moved to a small town in Haida Gwaii and okay. uh, Queen Charlotte Islands, and it still was never an issue around right. being adopted. Many of my friends lived with different family members right. or within the village community had different parents. And it wasn't until my early 20s 
that adoption records, you could actually apply for your history. Mm -hmm. And so I did. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I always knew how loved I was. I always was pretty blessed I had. Although my parents divorced when I was very young, I had an amazing stepfather, amazing stepmother. I had been surrounded by amazing, strong women in my life that um, really helped raise the you know that yeah. takes a village yeah, it literally, really did yeah. literally take a village to raise me and my sister and my brother I'm sure of it and so in my 20s I applied for this information wanting to know if there was anything else and it came back with what's called a non-veto clause so I actually have a redacted form which means everything in it is blacked out I cannot see any of my background but what we could see was very different than what my parents had been given at my birth. So they didn't actually know, this wasn't a secret they kept from you, it was kept from them? It was kept from them. Oh, okay. So my okay. paperwork looked very different, so I immediately contacted uh, the social worker assigned to my case, I asked about it, and they explained to me that there was a possibility that maybe they didn't put all the information in my original birth documents because my father was native Canadian uh. and German. And I asked them, I said, like, by Native Canadian, what does that mean? I yeah. grew up on, you know, um, Haida territory, traditional territory. I said, I've, I've been surrounded my whole life by these strong First Nations, um, you know, cultural protocols. What do you mean by Native, quote unquote? Yeah. And they said, well, you know, Indian. Ah. And so in the 70s, yes, I'm dating myself, <laughs> um, to adopt a child of First Nations descent, they didn't tell the parents usually, the adopted parents, um, unless it was really obvious. And so oh, I see. I could don't, pass, so to speak. Yes, yes, I can pass quite easily as yeah. Scottish and German, but it yeah. turns out that my father was, um, at least from what we could understand, uh, half First Nations and okay. half German. No other information was available. But it made sense because all growing up, we knew there was some piece missing um, around just my comfort around being in Haida Gwaii. I love it. It is where my heart sits. Um, my heart is with uh, the land, the people. Yeah. It made sense to me. So we, we, we call it our heart culture, so right. to speak. Um, but in my 20s went, okay, that's the piece that was missing. That's all I needed. So. So I do identify as being Scottish, German, and First Nations. Okay. I don't know my ancestry. We assume it's from back east, but we aren't 100% sure because my file is closed. It has that non-veto on it. So there is no way to actually get that information. And we've tried multiple different ways. And that's okay, actually. I felt, I felt like it was okay. Um, I had a bigger sense of who I was. I had information that I could pass on to my children that they they actually could understand maybe um, a little bit more about who we are and, mm -hmm. and just felt so honored to have been raised up in Haida Gwaii that, right. that I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. Isn't that an amazing, fortuitous circumstance and coincidence that your adopted parents moved to Haida Gwaii to raise you without having a single notion yeah. that you had First Nations ancestry? Is that it, not amazing? It's I know, amazing. When I think and, back to that. And we sort of, we look back and I think about my Nana, who from the time I was born said very clearly, we need to get her papers because she's First Nations. My Nana said it all along. Right. She knew. 
right. because they had done a lot of, my Nana um, worked on the reserve in the Okanagan um, okay. with a number of different communities and was very much a part of recording stories and oh, okay. helping um, First Nations communities with their cultural um, uh, sort of ethnographies and language and, right. and helping them through some of those Recover. darker times yeah. during Indian agents and, and yeah. residential school and and actually helped um, provide support for many of the families. So she she always said that, you know, there was that there and that we needed to, to honor that. And so when we found out in my 20s, it, she wasn't surprised at all. Right. Yeah, yeah. not at all. So how, how, if at all, has that knowledge being in your 20s, I'm assuming you had already started your post-secondary education and you did uh, infer earlier that you have a degree previous to your teaching certificate slash degree. Uh, and I'm assuming that you've always had an insatiable curiosity about cultures and, mm -hmm. and where cultures come from and, and what feeds that very word culture because that's just the way you are. Okay, listeners, you're getting a personal perspective <laughs> of mine right now. Um, this is a woman who just has an insatiable zest for for life, and and most of it seems to be on such a rich level. It never seems like you're just, hey, I just want to have fun, you know, which can come across from vivacious people. But uh, how did that influence, if at all, your your future choices? And for instance... Why did you move away from Haida Gwaii? Right. So, I mean, I'll start from the end there. I had okay. to move from Haida Gwaii because we only had a K-12 school. Oh, and okay. I wanted to come down and go to school. I always assumed I would go back home, though, and work back home, not knowing what that work would look like. Right. Right? So when I came down to Vancouver, um, I came to live with my dad and, and to attend school down here, and I did complete my first degree in art history, anthropology, and archaeology. Mm -hmm. And my minor was in uh, religious studies. Okay. And part of that work around archaeology and anthropology was doing some digs out um, in Hatsik, okay. rock territory, okay. um, using colonial terms here, yeah. so that people know where I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and it just was so right. Right. It just felt so right. Right. And I loved it. I loved it. And I did some work in that area, um, particularly around art history, actually, mm -hmm. which is, is a huge passion of mine. Mm -hmm. um, I love to travel. I love to spend time in, in communities and learn about culture and, and archaeology that, that has already sort of been happening, but also to look at the history of art, the history of technology, the complex right. civilizations that, that have existed in different areas for thousands of years. And so it just wasn't, it wasn't quite enough. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't make it work. Right. Even though that was the passion. And so in my 20s, I had, when I had received my documents, I was actually already currently working on a teaching degree. Oh, okay. And had been teaching what we at that time called comparative civilizations, which was art history, anthropology, and okay. religious studies within a social studies context for senior secondary. Oh, okay. Okay. So... That sort of was a perfect tie-in because yes. I loved being in the school. I am the child of teachers. I admit it. Um, multiple teachers. <laughs> Everyone was a teacher. I can't get away from it. You can't get teachers. away from it, no. No. Um, which is a good thing in, in many ways. It's also a scary thing in other ways. But um, 
so yeah, I just, I, I really felt like this was a great fit. So it, I was already working towards that. And it was interesting because not having all the information in my 20s, getting the information, it said that my birth mother, her passion was art history and oh, music wow. and dance. Yeah. And that the family was musical, which I am very not. I, I have trouble with technology pushing play. Right. But my children are. Right. So clearly there was this genetic component that right. I didn't know I had been nurturing all along. Right. And it made me really look at that whole nature versus Isn't nurture. It, oh, it's so splendid. That's it's, one of my favorite, favorite conversations. I, <laughs> I love that conversation. <laughs> well, another podcast. Yeah, it's a totally three. different podcast. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's sort of where it all ended up yes. falling into was, was really going, okay, how, how do I nurture my passions at the yeah. same time? I hadn't been influenced in any way by right. what was already there, but because of where I was raised and because of the type of unconditional support from family, yeah. I do believe I had the opportunity to explore these multiple different avenues to find myself where I am today. And that is working as an Indigenous learning helping teacher. I work in uh, the field of education. I taught in a classroom for 18 and a half years. Can't believe that. Wow. Um, primarily in intermediate, late intermediate, some work in secondary doing uh, elective courses Okay. Um, around social studies and English. Okay. And um, I now am working with teachers and classrooms and students and pre-candidate teachers and grad programs okay. to engage in conversations around understanding how do we bring in an honest and authentic Indigenous perspective to the curriculum so that when we're teaching students, yeah. they have truth, they have understanding, yeah. they have respect and acknowledgement for territory, for history, and then acknowledge reconciliation. So that's sort of my role now. Um, and it's it's massive. It is, and yes. And it's challenging. Yes. And it's amazing. So that touches upon something that I really did want to ask you to converse about, and that was that I've recently had an illuminating conversation with some senior students regarding their, really truthfully, their deep unrest with the way they learned about Indigenous life. Let's just call it life. They, they described that from... I think they said grade two, they were educated about culture, indigenous culture, in a fairly, it's, and again, I temper this with the fact that uh, oftentimes when people are, are relating a personal story, it's so heavily influenced by the emotions surrounding it that you're not necessarily getting clarity on the facts, it just being bare bones facts. But it sounds as though sifting through that, what I hear is a lot of information about cultural uh, backgrounds, about ceremonies. The word protocol wasn't even brought up, so that definitely wasn't part of that education. Um, about differences, a lot of talk about differences, um, a lot of talk about food, a lot of ta I'm just t I'm talking about the stuff that they all related to me. So this, whether or not that was all they learned, that's all that they remember. And I think that's really important to say. And that I think that uh, what came out of that aspect was that they all seem to describe a certain inurement 
a certain lack of caring by the end of the education process, um, given that most most of them are grade 11. Okay, so we had a couple of grade 10s, 11 and 12, so later secondary years. And then the conversation further went into an avenue in which one of them described with near tears in her eyes how uh, sorrow filled and stricken she was to then have for one year only the education surrounding residential schools and what Canadian Euro settlers wreaked upon the Indigenous cultures that they'd been learning about for the previous eight years that they no longer cared about because they were so sick of hearing about it. And I, if you remember when I contacted you, I was so moved by the 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 fact that these young people didn't want to feel that way. They didn't want to be feeling as though they didn't care. They didn't, they wanted to care, but they were at this place where, where did we go from this? And why did we learn that so late? And why did we, and then there that, that, that child that's inside that young person saying, why did we do this? Mm-hmm. And then the other part, well, well, why do we have to say sorry? Cause we didn't do that. And my parents didn't do that. And so it, it, what was this, what was, I think starting out as just a, I think they were just giving me a comment on their current education. It turned into this really stirring and heartbreaking conversation about something that they knew was incredibly important for them to have a greater understanding about. And furthermore, to educate their future progeny, perhaps, or even just within their peer groups or themselves. And I think they just wanted to know what I thought about what I was hearing and I I spoke right away about our friendship. I spoke right away about how I have always felt that it's so important to recognize that when we are in anyone's land, whether we consider it our own or not, to look around and see what it's comprised of, because it's never just us. And I've been lucky enough to do quite a bit of traveling. And in my travels have been so aware of feeling like an outsider. And at a young age, I remember wondering what it would be like to be an outsider if you thought you were an insider. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, totally. So when when I first became aware, and I, I, I genuinely cannot remember ever thinking about, we, we didn't, in my schooling, and I'm sure you can attest to this too, we didn't have Indigenous education. It was, we had the Cour de Bois. I learned about the fur trading. I learned about things back east. I learned about the Indians, and I learned about how the Indians lived in teepees and up north and did a lot of trapping and taught um, white people, settlers, good settlers, um, how to take care of themselves in the winter. And that there was some trading. And then in the particular place I grew up, there was actually a reservation just outside of town. And then I heard a lot of uh, racist comments from elders in the community, sometimes not so elders, about, you know, how dirty it was and how ill-kept. And, you know, and then I also remember hearing about how, you know, Indians can't hold their booze. And I remember thinking, just feeling sick inside by all these comments because to me they were just mean it wasn't about a a race or an ethnicity or a person of a certain culture it was just mean and as I came into my mid-20s I started to work downtown and my route of driving was right down water Powell that whole you know needle park quote-unquote Oppenheimer Park area and it was the first time in my life that on a daily basis I was faced with what sorrow can do to a human being 
did I happen to know the ethnicity of each and every one of these people? No, I didn't. But I can tell you that I just saw a lot of faces ravaged by ill health and no food and not enough good water and no love. And later on, I was contemplating moving to this community, which is Port Coquitlam, which of course is the home of the famous Picton Farms. And I can't begin to tell you how all of those weird bits of knowledge tied in and made this weird map of, of recognition of all along I was feeling bad. And as though I was feeling bad because I thought something about my humanness is not being addressed here. And I wasn't sure what it was. I wasn't raised in a racist family. I wasn't raised in an ignorant family. So I, I didn't feel as though... I could pinpoint it, oh, it's this person's fault or that person's fault or it's because I'm not this. But all those puzzle pieces came together and they created kind of a, a weird inner peace in me. I can't say that I then went out and pursued a further education to enlighten myself as to all that has happened with the Indigenous culture within Canada. But I can say that I was incredibly open to hearing whatever I might hear. And I met you. And so that's what, why when I heard these young people talking like that, I thought, oh my goodness, I would love to have Heidi address this as best she can, not having them in front of you grilling you, but maybe just to give um, a perspective about what you are trying to teach educators how to educate about this, a perspective of living in a culture that was here long before any of us popped along, and then a perspective of, quote unquote, looking Caucasian and passing for Caucasian and being actually adopted as Caucasian, not by people that were looking for that, but as an adoption agency that was trying to pass you off as something that was considered more desirable. So I feel like you have so much, so much to offer as far as uh, a, a quick education <laughs> for, in, for in the powers that in 20 or minutes less. or less. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's what I wanted. Well, I mean, there, it. There's so many layers and so many levels of complexity into into your thinking and into our questions and and into the the conversation that you had mm -hmm. with with those those dancers. Um, so I, I mean, let's start from the beginning, right? Yes. We know, and I can only speak from my own perspective, my own understanding, my own learning. Mm -hmm. Um, because I am not an expert in the sense that we have over 600 First Nations communities in Canada. Right. Two, more than 200 here in BC. Just First Nations, not including the Inuit and the Métis. Right. And each one of those communities comes with their own protocols, their own cultural beliefs, traditions, ceremony, language. Right. Each one is tied to the land in some way. You can't know it all. Yeah. And not being a part of a community, not being connected to my ancestral home, mm -hmm. I have a perspective as an outsider, but I also have a perspective as someone who has lived within those communities yeah. um, with so much respect yeah. for the people and the teachings that I have been given. Yeah. Um, so, so let's step back and recognize that we know First Nations communities have been on this land that we call Canada now, for thousands of years, mm -hmm. and in some cases for more than 13,000 years. Mm -hmm. So when we think about that, that's the land ice bridge, that's, you know, four times as long as the Great Pyramids, right? Like mm -hmm. putting it into a context around, you know, timeline, right? Like, mm -hmm. let's think about this. This is not new. And prior to fur trade, explorers, the gold rush, 
newcomers coming to settle. It was a welcomed relationship. And the communities, the people, the, the way in which life itself existed was very complex. There mm -hmm. was um, governance systems. There were hierarchies in terms of um, how, how families ran within communities. There was trade. There was economies. There was mm -hmm. many, uh, and I'm speaking past tense because mm -hmm. that's changed now. Yeah, right? hugely. But prior to having visitors to this land, mm -hmm. There was a rich, complex society already existing. Mm -hmm. And upon visitors coming and settling in this territory, connections around relationships became quite different. So mm -hmm. whereas it, it originally began as a very positive relationship um, between our First Nations, our Inuit and our Métis um, communities, it eventually did not maintain that relationship mm -hmm. it, it did turn quite negative and part of that was because the learning hadn't been done and comparisons were being done highlighting differences were being yeah. done from those coming from our european communities um, and visiting and recognizing that they didn't understand the newcomers did not understand the complex societies here they did not understand the soft the form of governance and why would you give everything that you had away at a feast like that doesn't make sense that would mm -hmm. be potlatching right. um that that's not how it's done um what do you what do you mean you don't use a you know bible indoctrinated religion um mm -hmm. well you have to you don't speak english so mm -hmm. comparisons were made focusing on differences not focusing on rich wealthy uh not economically wealthy but the wealth of knowledge that yes. was here yeah and as a result much history occurred that was negative and part of that history was the creation of the indian act right which to this day still governs all first nations and you MAT. Um, the Indian Act is still. I was just going to say, tell me, tell me in a few words, what is the Indian Act? Yeah, so the Indian Act is a federal government document yeah. that basically outlines the rights of Indigenous people here in Canada. I see. It tells us how we identify ourselves, hence why we were called Indians for so long. Right. Um, and then because that term was not very nice um, and we clearly weren't in. India, mm -hmm. uh, the term Aboriginal was placed upon us. Mm -hmm. um, once again, federal political name. Uh, prefer here in BC, we use First Peoples quite a bit as a representation of First Nations, Inuit and Métis, yeah. representing those First Peoples who were on this territory. Right. Uh, indigenous is another term that, that refers not only to uh, First Nations, Inuit, Métis here in Canada, but to Indigenous peoples globally. World over, yeah. yeah. So the Indian Act was created as a way to govern and keep in control these First Nations in UAMAT, and some of those pieces that we have heard about in, you know, society over the last yeah. few years, residential schools, reserves, yeah. of course, this whole issue around pipelines going through yeah. traditional territory, yeah. Yeah. Um, fishing, farm salmon, yeah. you know, why do we have the right to say no if it's, um, you know, on traditional territory? So the Indian Act, uh, those are just minor things. I mean, there was a whole thing around voting and recognizing you as a Canadian citizen right. and you know, it was our land. Um, so the Indian Act is still exists. Certain revisions have been made, but it still exists. And it still dictates how we are identified within our federal government as people here in Canada. Okay. So 
a few years back, um, there was some work being done um, around residential schools. The last residential school closing in 1996 in Saskatchewan. 1996. 1996, so well within our lifetimes. Yeah. And... We understand that in doing so, uh, stories of what happened in the residential school occurred and were shared. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was created um, amongst many, you know, conversations and and other pieces that, that had come up. In short, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was created after a number of years, the Truth and Reconciliation came up with 94 what we call calls to action around understanding how to create stronger, positive relationships with Indigenous people here in Canada and how we can look at creating changes to our federal policies such as the Indian Act. A few of those calls to actions were around curriculum and education. And it's meant to be Canada-wide. We're having some challenges across Canada doing that. But here in BC, we have an amazing organization called FINESC, or the First Nations Education Steering Committee, that work with the Ministry Mm -hmm. of Education. And (laughs) the calls to action around education have happened. And five years ago, conversation curriculum changes occurred. We called it the revised curriculum. It is now the curriculum. Three years ago, it became uh, mandated as the curriculum to do for K to nine. Last year, for this past year, it's been mandated for 10 to 12. Okay. So students who are saying, you know, like, this is what we learned about. Yeah. yeah. Because prior to the curriculum change, we received information about Indigenous peoples here in Canada, First Peoples, in basically grade four, when you got to do the Haida and the Inuit unit. Those were the two most popular units that you got to do. Teachers had their little can sort of lesson plans. They went off, they taught it, and you didn't take it again until secondary if you chose to take an elective course like English First Peoples or First Nation Studies. Okay. It wasn't in there. So unless you specifically wanted to learn, you may never have heard anything. Right. You may not have received any history. Right, right. The curriculum now states that in every single curriculum subject and in every grade K to 12, there needs to be an Indigenous perspective woven throughout. Right. Which means it can no longer be a one-off. We can no longer do what we refer to as the cultural iceberg. What we see at the top, the food, talking about ceremony. Quick little assembly. And I'm going to say, quote unquote, a totem pole, often made out of toilet paper rolls, that kind of thing. Let's make a dream catcher, even though they have nothing to do with BC First Nations. (laughs) These are sort of those those pieces that we would see that would visually say we're doing something about talking about Indigenous communities, Indigenous people. It's what was underneath that was more important. Yeah. So what we see at the top of an iceberg is just literally the tip of an iceberg. That's yeah. where it comes from. Yeah. It's what's underneath that we need to be focused on. Right. And what's underneath is the indigenous worldviews, the perspectives, the teachings, the understanding of our local history here. Yeah. Talking about residential schools, yeah. talking about trauma and intergenerational legacies and and really understanding the history of the people and what that looked like from an Indigenous perspective, not from a newcomer Eurocentric perspective, which is what most work is done as. Right. Um, 
So that sort of has us where we are today, and that's my job and what I do, um, is going around and working with teachers to show them what that bottom of the iceberg actually looks like, feels like, and how they can do it in a way that is respectful, in a way that is not a one-off. It's taken from the beginning of the year, and it's embedded throughout the curriculum in a natural way that also honors the cultures that are already in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So many teachers say, but I don't have any First Nations kids in my classroom. Why do I have to do it? Well, you have to do it because this is the land in which it comes from. This is our history. And we need to change what was written in those history books to actually reflect truth Mm -hmm. and to reflect what really, truly occurred here. Mm -hmm. Um, So that sort of takes us to today. And that's, that's the work that I get to go and do. And it's not without its challenges. Yeah. And it's not without... A lot of sadness some days. Yeah. But it's also with incredible beauty and joy and um, the moments where we get to work with kids, like like the group you were talking to, yeah. Yeah. who recognize and feel that change needs to happen yeah. and they want to learn. That's what motivates us. Yeah. And we see our Indigenous students becoming successful because they can see themselves in the curriculum and they see now that they don't need to pretend that they don't exist. Yeah. They get to be proud of their ancestry. They get to be proud of their history. I think the the one thing that I certainly don't feel because I, I as I circumscribe to you, I feel as though all along I... I was in the the truth of the moment that I was in. So what I understood, I understood, and I still carried my compassion and and my desire to treat humans equally wherever I went. But I certainly have appreciated the materials that you have lent to me in order to educate Kira through homeschooling, because some very important facts and things certainly thousands of of. Uh, interesting cultural facts and uh, protocols and ceremonies and ironically also uh, although I don't discuss this aloud too often as a child my dad used to he would say that I he said I can't quite figure out Sarah if you're going to pursue pantheistic future or pagan future but both of them speak to you clearly because I would spend hours and hours outdoors and I would give uh, trees names and I would give grass names I would give weather names I and and certain certain weathers for instance I love wind wind is a big thing for me and I I always felt as though wind would show up when I needed it most and so when I read I think I was probably in my teens I don't know where or what now. I, I should probably, I should try and trace that down. But it was something that possibly held a grain of truth about Indigenous beliefs and the the relationship with nature. I kind of went, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's all there. <laughs> Wait a second, it's here. Maybe I, ha- I do have a secret background I don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> so when you spoke of your actual truthful background, a little part of my uh, innately romantic nature thought, yeah, I totally understand. <laughs> Any, anyone who recognizes that the world is bigger than the little tiny itty bitty microscopic piece that we understand yeah, and that they're open 
to recognizing the importance of our connections to the land yeah. and to nature and to have a deeper sense of something bigger than ourselves. Yeah. It's a holistic view of being and yeah. a way of being and and it's a way of honoring story that came before us yeah. and is going to continue after us. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that is what speaks to you and to yeah. me and yeah. that's that's the part that that feels like it may have that indigenous yes 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 here i am yes exactly i get it i get it right (laughs) i'm at home because that is so much of of uh the indigenous way of being yeah and I, I think the the one thing that I do want to address before we unfortunately have to say goodbye to one another is that um, I saw a lot of sadness in these young women's faces in regards to finding out, albeit terribly hurriedly, but enough facts about residential school and what that meant to, as you pointed out, generations. And I feel as though... I certainly ameliorated it as best I could, but I don't know if it was really as resonant as it could be coming from you. So do you have something that you can say that is kind of a let's move forward with this in our hearts and in our minds as as the true spirit of reconciliation and and recognition and and self-education and becoming wiser, better human beings on the planet? Absolutely. So one of my go-to mentor um words of advice is senator sinclair okay and he taught he was he was the commissioner for the truth and reconciliation commission okay and he talks about seven generations of indigenous people went through residential school seven generations of indigenous people had to endure indian agents the removal of language the removal of our culture the removal of our ceremony um as well as being placed in reserves, being, you know, that forcible placement. Yeah. Um, and that education is what put us there. And right. education is what will take us out of that. Right. But it can't happen overnight. Right. And it can't happen in one year. It has to take probably the same amount of time that it took to put us there to be able to come through it in a healthy way, in a positive relationship. So if we think seven generations yeah. that took us there, it's going to take seven generations to, come to take us out. Yeah. And in doing so, recognizing that we can't begin that process of understanding the true impact without being able to share that truth of the history, mm-hmm. really doing that learning on our own, being open to understanding that things happened that were ugly. Mm-hmm. Things happened that we look at as, you know, quote unquote, the Canadian mm-hmm. um, that are horrific. Mm-hmm. And they happen to people all around the world. Yeah. And it's shocking to think that it happened here, but it yeah. did. Yeah. And we need to be careful with our own hearts and our own souls and understanding what that is so that we don't continue that hurt. Yeah. yeah. And that when we are doing our learning to recognize that as we share it with younger people, it needs to be age appropriate. Right. But you can't avoid it. No. And you can't avoid that truth of some of those horrific pieces that happened. We have to recognize that that trauma continues. And until the truth is there, and until it's a part of our curriculum on a regular basis, until there is an acknowledgement that we can move forward in Mm -hmm. a positive way, that intergenerational legacy of trauma is going to continue. Right. So many positive um, experiences have come from this as well, Mm -hmm. because whereas we always lived that pan-Indian 
stereotype of the drunk Indian or the dirty Indian yeah. or we have role models stepping up that are political. We have our Jodas. Yeah. We have yeah. we have lawyers, we have educators. Yeah. There's a young girl that just received the first Dean's Award. I saw that. At, yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. Like at UBC, young right? Young yeah. youth stepping up saying, We're gonna be part of that change to make yeah. the difference. Yeah. And part of that is about conversation. Yeah. And that's where you have to begin and yeah. be willing to even though it might make you uncomfortable and even though you really don't want to hear it sometimes yeah, yeah. to be able to say there's more to the story and I need to do that learning. I need to acknowledge the history here yeah. and I need to understand that to be able to have true reconciliation, we have to begin there. And reconciliation isn't about, you know, a shake the hand. Hey, I get it. You're, you're indigenous and yeah. all good. It, it has to be more. It has to be about positive relationships. That's a reciprocal relationship yeah. where we care for each other. Yeah, we're not we're not asking to have the land back. No, we're not. You know, and and this once again, just my own perspective, right? Yeah. So reconciliation is about building positive, strong relationships with all people in Canada, and reconciliation is for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. It's not just about having the settlers come clean. Yeah, that's yeah. not what this is yeah. about. And so really taking it and having those conversations and being willing to ask the questions and being vulnerable in that yeah. to know that it's not always going to feel good, but to know that there's good things that come out of it. Oh, my goodness. Well, I am forever grateful for you uh, having this conversation with me and everyone that's listening, because I think uh, it's it's a lot easier, I think, sometimes to hear things in the privacy of your own thoughts and hopefully people have a chance to do that with this podcast. And I so appreciate you sharing your expertise and your experience and your birthright <laughs> and your wonderful spirit uh, to tell what you told tonight. And thank you so much for coming to Sarah's Space. I loved being in Sarah's Space. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Heidi.